We're going to focus today on what is commonly called the Great Commission, and that will be our primary emphasis, but we have a few other things to consider before we get there. But as we come to the final verses of Mark's gospel, and the command given by Jesus to to the disciples to go into the whole world and to proclaim the gospel, that of course is in a sense what everything has been moving toward in as much as Jesus has chosen these men, he has trained these men, and now they are going to be sent out for the great task of taking the good news to the farthest parts of the earth because now everything has been clarified. Uh, The message of Christ's victory over sin and death through the cross and resurrection, the disciples now understand this and they are now ready to go and announce this to the world. They they couldn't have done that uh, before, of course, before the death and resurrection, it would have been premature. uh, But now that they they understand the whole story and, and God's whole purpose. They are ready to take the message to the world. And so we're going to consider that, as I said, but there are a few things that I want us to look at first. And one of them, the first one is a bit of a technical thing, uh, but it's an important thing. And it has to do with the verses that we just read together. These verses here in the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 9 through verse 20. Uh, You might not be aware of this, but there is a debate over, it's a scholarly debate over whether or not these verses were written by Mark and should be included in his gospel. Now, in all modern versions of the Bible, such as the NIV, which is the New International Version, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, uh, there is some indicator in every one of these Bibles. If you have one of those Bibles, there's going to be some indicator uh, informing the reader that these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts. And, and some will even add this, not in the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts. Uh, part of that sentence is true. The other part is a, really more just an opinion. Um, the, these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts, but it's only an opinion that the earliest manuscripts are the most reliable. But nevertheless, that, that is somewhere declared in the the Bible that you have, I would imagine, even in your lap today. Now, my Thomas Nelson New King James Version that I am preaching from here this morning has even there a footnote that reads this. I'm going to quote it verbatim to you. Verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in the modern Greek text as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So now now that's the footnote in my New King James Version. Now in my NIV Bible, um, 
it says this, and it's not even a footnote. It actually says this when you come to the end of verse eight, then it says this in the NIV Bible. If you have an NIV, you will know this. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses nine through 20. And the NIV translators are so certain that these verses were not part of Mark's original text that they then change the font, size, and style to distinguish between these verses and the, the rest of Mark's gospel. So for them, it's not even a debate. For them, it's just a, it's, they've decided that these were not in the original uh, text of Mark. Now, you might be wondering, why are, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this for this reason. We believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. We believe every word of it is inspired. And we say that, and we teach people that, and we uh, want to give people the confidence that they can trust the scripture. But when you read your Bible, and all of a sudden there's a note telling you that this part of the Bible is probably not supposed to be there, then you're in a bit of a quandary in regard to your conviction about this whole idea of the uh, the absolute accuracy, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. So I want to help you out with that because that's part of my job as a pastor to help you understand why uh, these things are even being debated. And so here are two questions that arise based upon the fact that there is this debate. Number one question, uh, are they part of the original text of Mark or not? We want to address that. And secondly, does it really matter? Does it really matter? So I want to give you, first of all, the arguments against them being in Mark, and then I want to give you the argument for them being in Mark. So the argument against them being original to Mark. In other words, uh, this argument argues that these verses from 9 to 20 were not in Mark's original gospel and therefore uh, shouldn't be considered really the gospel of Mark. Uh, What is the argument in favor of that? Well, it's the manuscript evidence. And in this case, it's the the idea of the oldest manuscript. So the oldest Greek manuscripts we have are the ones that I mentioned a moment ago, Codex uh, Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Uh, They're both uh, sometime between three, say 320 and maybe 350. That's the dates on those. So these are the oldest Greek manuscripts we have uh, containing the Gospel of Mark and verses nine through 20 are not in those manuscripts. So the scholars say it wasn't in the original. The the scholars would argue that this was added later by somebody else. So that's their first argument. The second argument is that verses 9 through 20 differ in style and word use from the rest of Mark. Therefore, it's obvious that somebody else added this later. Now, it is true that the, the style seems to be different 
And it is true that there are different words that are used. In the last few verses from 9 to 20, there are 14 words used, 14 Greek words used that have not previously been used in Mark's gospel. And so some say, see, it's obvious Mark didn't write this because look at these words. Mark never uses these words earlier. And now suddenly he's got these words in the final portion here. Now, if we back up for just a second, if we go to verse eight, this is how then, okay, so those who who do not believe that uh, these should be part of Mark, this is how they see the gospel of Mark ending. Let me read it to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So for those who reject verses nine through 20 as authentic to Mark, they say this is where Mark's gospel ended. Now you will notice, I think this would be a very abrupt ending to the gospel. It would be a much different ending than Matthew, Luke, or John. It seems to be an incomplete ending. Now, some people would say it's incomplete in the sense that it doesn't give us any further detail, but it's actually what Mark intended because Mark has a habit of being abrupt. And so this is just like what Mark normally does. He just you know, makes an, a sort of an abrupt statement and then he moves on to something else. So some people say that Mark intended to, to leave it like this. Other people that believe that the passage that we just read is not authentic to Mark, the verses nine through 20 say, um, no, no, Mark didn't intend to leave it this way. He didn't finish it abruptly. He was probably interrupted and not able to finish it. But then somebody came along later and thought, this needs an ending because after all, this is way too abrupt. It doesn't include um, the, the finer details of what happened after the resurrection. It doesn't include a great commission or anything like that. So uh, someone came along and added that later. So the arguments against verses 9 through 20 being original are Manuscript evidence, the oldest manuscripts, and the difference in style and word use. Now, the arguments for them being original to Mark. So what are the arguments for, uh, no, these actually are the words of Mark, and we should receive them as the words of Mark. Uh, Number one, manuscript evidence. So we've got the same thing. Now here, we have a majority of manuscripts. So in, in the case against it, it's, it's the age of the manuscript. So the oldest manuscripts don't contain it. But in the argument for, the majority of manuscripts do contain it. Now, the majority of manuscripts are older than the two that I mentioned, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. So again, the idea is that, no, somebody added this later, and it got in these later manuscripts because it you know, it was added, but it wasn't in the originals. And that's obvious because of the fact that the oldest manuscripts don't contain it. Now, the other thing in support of this being original to Mark is that these words from verses 9 through 20 
they were quoted earlier than Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. For example, in 100 AD, Papias referred to these verses. And so did Justin Martyr, and so did Irenaeus, and these are, these are men that lived before, in some cases 200 years before, so it's anywhere from 200 years before to 100 years before Vaticanus and Sinaiticus even were existed. These guys are quoting from it, from the passage that they say wasn't original. So what this then would seem to indicate is that they must have had been included in an earlier text. Have I lost everyone? Is this making sense? I, I, hope, I hope it's making sense. So it must have been there because how could these guys quote it if it wasn't, if it wasn't there? So the argument really comes down to it was either removed for one reason or another from uh, the earlier text where it was originally found or it was um, in, inserted later or it was never in, the, yeah, so it wasn't there, so it was inserted later. So this brings us to um, which one is it? Uh, the answer is, I don't know. Uh, nobody knows. It, so it's a matter of opinion. Now, I tend to lean more toward, being, uh, more toward it being original to Mark. Um, and, and the main reason I do that is because two things. I think we could easily find a manuscript later that is older than either Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. And then that, that could prove it. So I... Although I like, I like my NIV, I don't like the dogmatism of the scholars and the audacity of them to just say, this should not be there. I, I think it's okay to say it's questionable, but to, but to be dogmatic to the point where they actually change the font and the, the style and the size and very authoritatively say, this should not be there. I, th I think that's going too far myself. So I, I tend to lead... Uh, to lean toward it being original to Mark, but I don't know uh, that anyone can say for sure. Uh, no one can say for sure. But the second question that we're asking is this, does it matter? So what if it was proven somehow that this was not original to Mark, that it was added later by somebody else? Does that, what, it, what does that do? Uh, it doesn't really do anything because what is said is true, and we know it's true from the other three Gospels that there's no debate about whatsoever. Mark doesn't have any new information here. As, as we'll see in a second, what Mark records is paralleled with what Luke recorded, with what John recorded, and with what Matthew recorded. So at the end of the day, if Mark did not include this, if let's just say Mark really did end at verse 8, Maybe because uh, he just, that was his style. He was going to be abrupt. Or let's say he got interrupted and never got back to it. Uh, it doesn't matter because what's said is true. And what's said would then be um, just as inspired as the rest of Mark because it's consistent with the record of the events of the resurrection. So...
there you have it. That's our theology lesson for today. But like I said, it, I think it's important because, and this is where I see, you know, I kind of am in two worlds. Uh, I'm not a scholar. I'm a Bible teacher and a pastor, but I intermingle with scholars. And I see that scholars and, and Bible teachers and pastors, they need each other. And we, and we help each other out. And I depend on scholarly works. And they're of great benefit to me many, many times. Uh, but I think scholars also really need the input of pastors. Because scholars generally tend to be disconnected from the boots on the ground type of stuff. And, you know, they can come up with all kinds of theories and ideas. And they don't realize when they're throwing these out there, this can, this can be damaging to people's faith. So the pastor comes along and says, hey, that's a, an interesting thought, but think about the rest of this stuff too, because maybe in your scholarly context, you haven't really thought about things in a pastoral way. So I'm speaking to you as your pastor, and I want you to know that if you're reading your NIV and you see that very bold statement that you know this is not in the original, that you're not shaken by that, but you realize, okay, this is, this is because there is um, some debate about this particular passage. So that, that's the practical purpose for looking at it. The second thing, which is actually the third thing here, um, that I want to point out is just going back to the text for a second itself, the verses that we read. And I just want to remind you of two things. I want to remind you of the honesty, which supports the authenticity of the text. And then I want to just point out a couple of parallels here. One, one parallel with Luke and one parallel with John. But one of the things that I believe, and I know many others feel the same way, is one of the beautiful things about the, the scriptures and the New Testament is the honesty of the text. Now, you know, there are lots of people that try to deny the integrity of the scriptures. There are lots and lots of people who say, well, the Bible, you know, you can't believe this. It was all made up. Uh, this is just mythology. This is legend and so forth. We've talked about those things in the past. So there are people who say that, but they don't stop to think that, you know, if you're making something up that you're trying to convince people uh, is, is really the truth, it's highly doubtful that you're going to include in your story that there were people right there at the time who doubted that it was true. You know, you're not going to do that. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you include doubters? I mean, you say, this happened and it was amazing, but the closest people to it doubted. So you just sort of undermined your case right there if you were to do that, unless it was true. So the honesty of the scripture to me testifies to the truthfulness of the scripture. And so look at just a few passages here. Verse 11, and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, by Mary Magdalene, they did not believe. Verse 12, 
After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And then there's one more here. Um, Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen from the dead. If I'm making up a story and I'm trying to convince you that it's true, I'm not gonna include in it a bunch of people that are doubting. I'm just gonna skip over that part of it. But they didn't do that. Why? Because it's true. They did doubt. And why did they doubt? They doubted because they didn't expect it. The last thing they expected was for Jesus to rise from the dead. They didn't understand that he was going to do it. And so they were absolutely amazed that he did rise from the dead. And it was like, it was just too good to be true. But of course, they came to fully embrace it. And that's how the story goes on. But really quickly, two things here. There's uh, two references that I want to point out. In verse 12, here is uh, Mark's version of the Emmaus Road. And the Emmaus Road story is recorded in Luke. And maybe you remember, Jesus, there's two men. This is after the death of Christ and after his resurrection. There's two men walking along the road. Jesus joins them, but his identity is somehow Uh, veiled. They don't recognize them. And so he joins them and they're walking along and they're depressed. And he says to them, as he joins them, he says, why are you so sad as you walk along and have this conversation? And they say to him, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? Don't you know the things that have happened here? Jesus says, no, tell me about it. What things? How Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and deed, We thought that he was the one that was going to deliver Israel, but he was crucified. He died. And that was three days ago. And certain women, they went to the tomb and they said that his body wasn't there. And Jesus said to them, oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written Should not the Christ who have suffered and entered into his glory? And then it says from that, he opened up all of the scriptures to them about himself. So that's what Mark's referring to here. He's he's referring to that incident that's recorded in its detail by Luke. And then when we come to verse 14, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. This is a story from John's gospel where they're gathered in the upper room. Jesus comes to them, reveals himself to them. They're stunned. They can't believe it, but they finally embrace it. But one of them wasn't there. His name was Thomas. And so then they went and they told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He was here. He came. He was among us. Thomas said, I'll never believe it. I will not believe it unless I can see it for myself. As a matter of fact, he said, I won't believe it unless I can touch the wounds on his hands and put my hand into his sight. Only then will I believe it. Well, a week later, they were in that same room. Thomas was there this time. And Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. And he says, Thomas come and touch me and see. And then he says to Thomas, and do not continue to be unbelieving, but believe. And so Mark just gives us a summary, a very brief summary of 
what happened there. And so, like I said, we see that the verses, whether they were original or not, are accurate reporting of what did happen. So those are the couple of things that I wanted to uh, just address initially. But the main thing that I want us to focus on today is what we commonly call the Great Commission and Mark's version of it. So you find this in Matthew. Uh, you find, in, in every one of the Gospels, you find a, the Great Commission. Matthew uh, says, go into all the world, preach the Gospel. It's very similar to Mark's Great Commission. Luke's is a little bit different because it's a little more detailed. Um, and then John's is considerably different because John doesn't record this particular wording for us. But John tells us, that Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So that's the Great Commission as John records it. But here, the Great Commission is stated in verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the translation of the New King James uh, you could translate it, go into the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Um, I like the way the NLT puts it, go into the world and preach the gospel to everyone. That's what's being commanded here. Now, I want us to see, first of all, we'll break these five things down, but I want us to see that this has a twofold application. Because Jesus is talking to a very specific group of people here. The, he's not talking to just a general audience. So it's like, here we are, if Jesus was here today and he was giving the Great Commission, it wouldn't be to everyone in the room, it would maybe be to a select, a handful. And for that handful, who he's called to this specific task, these words apply, but then they also have a, a little bit of a broader and a different application for the rest of us. So I think everyone who is a believer has a responsibility to respond to the Great Commission, um, but the response is different. It's not the same for everybody. So let me let, first let's walk through the, the points here. There's basically five points. Number one, go. Go into all the world. Now, he didn't say stay right where you're at and don't worry about it. I'll send everybody to you. Um, although that is initially what did happen because everybody came to Jerusalem for the Feast of, <laughs> Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost. And, um, and, and so the Lord brought them there and that's how everything began. But then they were to ultimately leave Jerusalem and to begin to go out into all the world. We know from the book of Acts that things got a little bogged down. And you can understand why they got bogged down because Jerusalem was exciting. It was the place to be. Man, God was working. And why go anywhere? Let's just stay here and enjoy this wonderful thing that God's doing. But then, because the Lord had told them to go and they weren't going, he allows persecution to come. And you know what the result of the persecution is? And those who believed went everywhere preaching the gospel as they went. That's what they were supposed to do in the first place. So there is this command to go. 
And this command for some people is very specific. God calls some people to go. He calls some people to leave the comforts of home. He calls them to leave the comforts of family and culture. And he calls them to go into an entirely different place. And he's always done that. He's done that through all history. And guess what? He's still doing that today. And there might be some listening to my voice today. God is actually calling you or he's going to call you to go somewhere. He's going to call you for the gospel's sake to leave where you're at currently. And he's going to call you maybe to another city. He might call you to another state if it's in the context of the United States. He might call you out of the United States to another country. He might call you to a country that's fairly similar to this country, uh, a Western country that's life is maybe just a a little bit different culturally and and language-wise, but it's very similar. He might call you to a place that is so unbelievably different. You can even imagine it, but he's going to call you there and he's going to send you there. So that's what he does. He calls us to go. And second point, he calls us to go everywhere. He calls us to go everywhere. We're to go into all the world. And there's not a single place or a single people group that Christ is not wanting to bring the gospel to. And, you know, it's really amazing to see over all the years of church history or even more recently, I just was, I saw two things um, on, I think it was Instagram, uh, a friend of mine uh, who pastors a church in Brea, uh, Alan Frau, I saw that uh, he and his team were somewhere in the Far East, and they just had a couple of pictures of them ministering in this little village, and I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know, looking at the people there. And then I also saw an Instagram from uh, David Guzik's wife, Inga Lil Guzik, And she's a dental hygienist, and she's just been in Kenya uh, doing a clinic where she's been, you know, doing dental things for all of these people. And man, I looked at that, both of those, and I thought, this is so amazing. This is what it's about, going out, getting the gospel out. And so that's where we go. We go everywhere, and we go everywhere, and we preach. So here's where I want us to see a distinction. The, the commission here, specifically to preach the gospel, is a commission that's given to these men and those people who will be like them in calling uh, throughout the ages. Because the word preach here means literally to proclaim. It means to herald it. And that's what they did. So they were proclaimers. They were heralds of the word. They were apostles. And so they went out and they were given the the calling to go proclaim. They were preachers. Now, not every Christian is a preacher in that sense. That's why I want to make this distinction here. Because the one who does this is the one who's called to do it, to go out as that proclaiming voice. But, like I said, the, the application is to all of us. So what about those who are not called to preach? Well, for those who are not called to preach, we are to go and we are to speak. 
So some go and herald, proclaim, those who are called to do that. Some go and speak, and they tell the story as they go. And it's interesting in Acts, I think it's chapter 8, um, or maybe it's later in 9 after uh, Saul, or I it's somewhere around there. Um, when it talks about the people being scattered, and, and it says specifically, except the apostles. So the proclaimers, the preachers, aren't scattered. They stay for a season, but everybody else is scattered. And it says that they went everywhere preaching the gospel, but the word for preach there is not the same word as it is here. What they did is they went and they basically talked about the story of Christ. So you see, there's kind of two categories. There are people that are called as preachers, as apostles, as evangelists, as proclaimers that are to go. And then there are people who are called as storytellers. Storytellers in the sense of you're telling the story of the gospel. So you're going to do that maybe in the context of your job or maybe in the community that you're at. So it's probably not going to work to show up at work tomorrow morning and to climb up on a desk and start proclaiming, start heralding the gospel. That'll work for probably a minute, and then you'll be fired. And then your ministry there will be over. <laughs> so, but you're going to go to work, and you're going to look for those opportunities that God might bring along for you to tell the story of Jesus to the people around you. So these are, like I said, they're, they're two things. Some go, some stay, some preach, some speak. So in other words, the application is to all of us, but it's not, it doesn't work itself out in exactly the same way. So preach what? Preach the gospel. The gospel, the word gospel the Greek word is euangelion. That is the word that we translate into evangelism or evangelical. You can see the connection there. And it's the word that means good news. That, that's, what, that's what this word means. Gospel means good news. Go into the world and preach the good news. And, you know, I think today Christians need to realize this and remember this. Our message is the good news. It's not the bad news. Now, you've, you've probably heard the term, uh, as a matter of fact, somebody just said it to me a week and a half ago because they were going to come to church and they said this. They said, so is it going to be hellfire and brimstone when I come? And, and that's a term. People t think about, a, you know, that's a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Now, I believe in hell. I believe there is a judgment. But I don't believe that that is the way you lead when you want to talk about good news. Good news, well, the good news is you're not going to hell. That's the, the good news. But the good news is that Christ, he took care of your sins that had you indebted to God and unable to pay your debt, 
Jesus dealt with that. He took care of that. The good news is that Christ died and is risen. Our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God and given eternal life. So in other words, what I'm saying is that the message, our first message uh, or, or the way we lead with this message is to remember it's good news. And it's good news about what Jesus did. Now, there's a time to add the, the bad news for those who are re- resistant. But we shouldn't lead off with the bad news. We should lead off with the good news. That's what Jesus said. Go into the world and preach the gospel. Preach the good news. And like I said, I think we as Christians need to remember this. We need to remember two things. Number one, it's the good news. Secondly, it's about what Jesus has done. Because sometimes as Christians, and especially in our, in our culture, sometimes we end up preaching, and we're not preaching either the good news nor are we really preaching what Jesus did. We're preaching something else. We're preaching sometimes like a morality. Hey, you shouldn't be living that way. Hey, did you know that's wrong? That's a sin. You better not do that. You, you should stop doing that. Sometimes that's how Christians approach things. And some, there's some things that we, we kind of tend to naturally think are worse than others. So then we're gonna drill down even more uh, harshly on on some of those kinds of things but that's not preaching good news that's not preaching jesus that's preaching a moralistic kind of a message you shouldn't be living this way you shouldn't be doing those things you should be living like this that's not the message the message is about christ and christ guess what when people meet christ those things get sorted out that's what he does he deals with it he shows them shouldn't be living this way You can't live this way anymore. And I'm going to give you power to not live this way. So we want to make sure that we are preaching, proclaiming, and speaking the good news that has to do with what Christ did for us. So let's be leading with Jesus when we have conversations with people. Try to make a beeline to what Jesus has done. And many times it's a good... Uh, a good way to get into that is to just what Jesus has done for you, what he's done in your life, the good news as you've received it. And of course, if we really are proclaimers of good news, you know, when somebody proclaims good news, they proclaim it joyfully, right? When you've got some great news, you're like, oh gosh, this is the best news. I can't wait to tell people about it. There's just a, there's a built-in enthusiasm and joy about it because it's such good news. And so that's what they were to do. And then to all creation, to every tribe, to every language group, to every people, to every nation, there's no one excluded. God is the God of all people. Christ is the savior of all people. And so the message is to go to Everyone. Now, when we think about that, though, I, I think we would probably all, to some degree, feel a bit daunted by the task. I know I do sometimes. Sometimes I think, wow, it's just so overwhelming. The task of, of getting the gospel to people. 
And undoubtedly, the disciples felt the same way. How are we going to do this? Well, here's the great news. (laughs) We get empowered by God to do it. We don't do this through our own strength. We don't do this through our own wisdom. We don't do this through our own uh, intellect or ability to articulate or whatever it is. We do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives to those that he sends out. And that's what we see as we read here. Verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. That's power. In my name, they will speak with new tongues. And uh, they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, every one of those things, with the exception of, of the drinking of anything deadly, we can find an example of that in the book of Acts. That's what they did. And let me just say, what they did then is what God wants to empower us to do today. So the Lord hasn't uh, just called us to go do this. He's going to supply us with the power to do it, the supernatural power to do it. And we read verse 20, the final verse, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So you see, that's how it works. God's commissioned all of us to basically accomplish the same thing through slightly different means. Some he's called and equipped to proclaim, to preach, to herald. Some he's called and equipped to speak and to tell the story. Some are to go. Some are to stay and help people go. And of course, stay and reach the immediate area. Remember too, in the book of Acts, um, the the message as the spirit came upon them, Jesus said, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So it starts at home. You'll be a witness here. And then you'll go a little bit further out. And then you'll go a little bit further out from there. And then eventually you're going to go out to the very ends of the earth. And that's the way it works. And so as we close today, I want to say one final thing here. And it has to do with verse 16. And remember, these are the words of Jesus. He says, those who believe and are baptized will be saved, but those who do not believe will be condemned. So it's an urgent message because eternity is what's at stake. And so those who believe will be saved. They will be saved from their sins, from the the consequences of their sin, from the penalty of their sin, from the debt that their sin has incurred before God. They will be saved from that because Jesus takes care of that. Now, it's baptism is added here, but it's clear that baptism, there's no place in scripture where it says that baptism saves you or is the means to save you. And we see that um, those who are condemned are, are not condemned for uh, their failure to be baptized, but they're condemned for their failure to believe. But why does it say baptism here? Well, it says baptism here because baptism was the way in the ancient world, especially where you identified 
as a believer. So the person who believes, they make the public declaration of their faith through baptism. So I think that's why it's added here. But it's not required for salvation. There's, there's nothing to support um, from the scripture that baptism is necessary for salvation. But it's, but it's stated here, as I said, because it was the, uh, it was the outward show of a person being converted, being saved. So, but notice, the ones who believe will be saved, but the ones who do not believe will be condemned. So there is that reality. There is the reality that there is a judgment day that's coming. And those who refuse the salvation that Christ offers will then have to pay for their sins themselves. And the price is an eternal separation from God. And so it's an urgent matter. And so we want to go forth responding to that commission. And I want to leave you with this today. I want to challenge every one of you to ask the Lord this question. Lord, how does the Great Commission work itself out in my life? Please show me and lead me to do that very thing that you have created me to do in relation to your Great Commission. Some of you, if you're serious about that, guess what? One day, I don't know when, one day you're going to go. You're going to go somewhere else because there's tons of need everywhere. Uh, For others of you, you're going to go into your regular environment with a completely different perspective, a completely different attitude and a completely different approach to life. Some of you are going to realize that God's called me to send. I'm a sender. So I'm going to contribute. I'm going to give resources so others can go. And I'm going to be connected to them going. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to root for them. I'm going to try to encourage them. And I'm going to be part of sending them, not just by writing a check, but I'm going to write a check and then I'm going to, I'm going to pray for them and, and support them in the, the more personal kinds of ways. You see, we're all called to engage in the Great Commission. But I think that we all also must, in all sincerity, ask the Lord to show us what that looks like for us. And know it will look like one of these things. And then take that step of faith to begin to do it. You know, faith is a huge factor. Because whenever you're going to take a step in the direction of serving God, there are going to be all kinds of suggestions come your way that for various reasons, you know, you, you shouldn't do this. Some of it's going to simply be, you are not qualified to do this. You might as well just get that thought out of your mind. And you've got to resist that thought and realize that God, uh, he qualifies. He equips, he prepares those that he sends. And, you know, there will be a number of different things. Oh, well, I'm not worthy to do this. Well, nobody's really worthy to do anything. But God makes us worthy through the work of Christ in our lives. Because I'm convinced that all of us are to be part of this. But 
how that works itself out personally is something that you need to connect with the Lord over and let him reveal that to you. And so I think we can safely say that as we come to the conclusion of the gospel of Mark, I mean, this is the, the whole story is laid out for us by Mark to bring us to the place where we realize that Jesus is the savior of the world and we join him in his mission to reach people all over the world. That, so this is like the climactic moment of the, this is what the whole gospel was, was leading toward. That we would then lay hold by faith of that vision and that we would go forth into all the world with the good news. So Lord, thank you that you have saved us And Lord, you've saved us so that you could empower us and bring us into the work of the kingdom that you're doing. And Lord, as we see this this mandate really to go and to preach the gospel everywhere to all people. And Lord, we see also the promise of empowering So I pray, Lord, for us as a congregation collectively that we would be all about the Great Commission. And Lord, I pray for people personally here today, individuals all throughout the room. I pray, Lord, that you would speak very clearly into their lives about what this looks like for them as your people what the Great Commission being fulfilled looks like in and through their lives. Lord, help us all to yield ourselves to you so that we can be part of the great thing that you're doing. Lord, we only have a short time. Our lives are uh, like a vapor that appears for a moment. And so, Lord, help us not to waste another day in our own thing exclusively, but help us, Lord, to really enter in to all that you have for us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone with us today that is yet to receive the good news personally, to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, move upon their hearts to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.